Thank you, Kylan. Thank you, Pam. Thank you. That was, uh, you're so creative with that kind of stuff. That is so, I like the, the, uh, the card. That was really creative. <clears throat> I heard a license to talk for as long as I want, right? <laughs> Did you guys hear that too? <laughs> Eric's not so excited about that. <laughs> um, Pam got all choked up up here, and I just wanted to note how interesting it is when you get on stage and there's an audience and, and just how emotive that can become and, and the Holy Spirit is swirling around from, from worship. And, and I, you guys know, you've watched me teach enough if you come often enough that I'll get choked up every now and then when I get emotional. And I tell, I tell my family, and I'm telling you, I script that. I put it in there. I say, here's the time to get all choked up right there. And I'm sure that she had it script. She was practicing a little earlier. But you know, on that note, it's interesting because one of the subjects today we're talking about is going uh, to be about the, the heart. It's going to be about influences on the mind. And the heart and the mind are really intertwined. And that emotive piece really, really influences us. I'm just using that as a segue into, into, the, into the sermon um, we're finishing up the last week of Love God with All Your Heart and All Your Mind. It's up over there, and I'm pointing over there because there's a little sign over there as well. Um, and it all really roots out of the, the verse that we're using as the foundation, which is um, without a mark, we're looking at Mark 12, uh, Mark 12, verse 29 and 30, but it is in all synoptic gospels, synoptic meaning all aligned. So it is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke that, um, that Jesus says this when he's asked what is the greatest commandment, and he's pointing back to Deuteronomy. He's, just, he, he's pointing back to the roots of the law that the Lord is laying down for all of humanity. So we're going to read from the beginning, Mark 12, verse 29 and 30. So Jesus is asked what, uh, what commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answers, the most important is... Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandments greater than these. And it's been said before, and it's very solid, is you take these two commandments, all the other commandments point to it. If you're doing these two things, all those other commandments fall in line. Um, Like I said, he's echoing Deuteronomy 6 and 10. So what we've looked at for the last three weeks, we looked at uh, taking your thoughts captive. We've got our, our mind has a, a conversation often running in it. We've got to take our thoughts captive, that inner dialogue. And what I love about 2 Corinthians is what, um, is what we were looking at during that period of time, is make it obedient to Christ. That is a really cool idea. That's a powerful idea. Captivate that thought and then make it obedient to Christ. Uh, the second week we looked at setting your mind on things of the kingdom what am I entertaining my mind with? What, and that comes out of Colossians 3, what, what is filling my mind? And third is taking your worries to the house of the Lord. We looked at Isaiah 36 when Hezekiah brings his worries, brings the letter of the attacking army, lays it in front of the altar and prays to the Lord. Surrender our worries to Jesus, our mediator through all of this. Really good practical lessons When I was doing study for this, when we were prepping for the whole series, really opened up to me, to be honest with you, is the challenge of these things. It's not really clear. The heart, the mind, the soul, the spirit comes and mixes into that. It's not simple. It's not clear. We want these categorized labels to be able to put things on a shelf and point to them and It's not really well understood. And in all honesty, it's not well understood today. If you go read in psychology about the mind and the emotions and how it affects, what is the soul? What is the spirit? Where do those split? Are they the same? Are they different? It's a a really complex idea, and I want to just open into this and saying it isn't categorized. That's our Western way of thinking. That's a very uh, scientific way of being able, it's a great way to, to, to understand and dissect things, but but it's, it's a mix. It's a soup. 
it's a soup of human, right? And so when we talk about these things, understand that they're not, they're, they're, they're not as divisive as they, we seem to, to pitch them out. Obviously, there's a lot to learn from the Bible through this. Uh, uh, through, through these scriptures, there's a lot to learn about it, even though it is complex and it's, and it's difficult. So, so two of the concepts that, that uh, show up a lot that I just introduced was the mind and the heart and how they blend together. In Genesis, I go all the way back to Genesis, when Gen- Genesis, God even says, the thoughts of the human heart continually are evil. This is just before the flood. The thoughts of the heart? See how we're mixing and blending these ideas? The heart, my motive portion, it is influencing how I think. It's influencing how I act. Pharaoh's heart is hardened. Sometimes Pharaoh hardens his own heart. Sometimes God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Sometimes, sure, it's kind of a mix. We can see that it is pointing to a decisive move that's happening that's changing a decision. In Romans, oh, you know what I forgot to do? Speaking of time, I'm going to start a clock. <laughs> because even though I have a full license, I'm going to be honoring to, to all of you. I think it was uh, somebody told Spurgeon, one of his teachings, that he doesn't mind that he peach preaches so long. It's his cows that really get upset because they need to be milked. So in honor of your cows, I'll put on a clock. Uh, in, Romans 8, <laughs> uh, in Romans 8, the one who searches the heart knows the mind and the spirit. Did you see how that... One who knows the heart, who knows where their motives are coming from, knows the mind and knows the spirit. I really love Proverbs. Um, this proverb, if you go and look it up, you're going to go, what was Kylan reading? Because it only reads this in this translation. The New King James Version reads this way. For, he, for as he thinks in his heart, so he is. As he thinks in his heart, so he is. I'm connecting my thinking, my mind, my choices, my emotive portions. So he is, which is my essence. You'll see that as a soul. See that as... Now, you go and read it in the NIV, in the, in the, in the ESV, it's going to read very, very differently. Um, it takes a lot of uncovering into the, how the, that gets translated, but um, I just like to point to that proverb. So between the mind and the heart. So I'm going to start with these two ideas. The mind, nous, is the, is the, and I'll reference it again later on, nous is the Greek term, which is our reasoning. It is our intellect, our thoughts. It, it even broadens to this concept of a, of a, a worldview. If you understand what I mean by a worldview, it is how we view the world. And I'll get into this a little later on, but... We're observing things, and it goes through filters. It goes through cultural filters. What is my worldview of how I read these things? That's happening in my mind. Think of it as a tool, though. It's a tool that's variable. It can be changed. It's not super rigid. And then the heart, cardia, is the Greek. You can see the the cardio coming out of that, right? The the heart, and it's emotive. It's affective. It's, It's your affections. It's our desires. What is motivating me to do these things? Scripture indicates that the heart is an emotive mechanism of influence. I want to focus on that emotive mechanism of influence. So these things are mechanisms that influence how I think, how I act, how I am, how I be, in a sense. So that's really what we're going to be pointing at, is these mechanisms of influence. And, and, and as in Proverbs, we're pointing to an identity. They influence who I am. They influence my identity. The identity of, of like I mentioned before, the spirit and the soul. Really difficult concepts to, to separate. And as a matter of fact, I don't think we can. They're very blended. The, the spirit, pneuma, is in the Greek, is this um, incorporeal, which means non-physical, uh, almost psychological influence. 
pneuma. There's this, there's this primary influence of the Spirit into... Um, well, well, First Corinthians, First Corinthians, uh, chapter two: the primary influence of the spirit of the world, or the spirit of God. Did you understand that? The spirit of the world. There's this influence that influences me of the of the world, but of God, God's spirit influencing me as well, and of the soul is. We get the word psychology out of the soul. It's an inner being. It's really the seat of the self or the essence of life coming out of that. So with a spirit, which is like my, my, my enthusiasm in a sense, I have a spirit about me. And then there's a, a soul and, and the, the psychology comes out of that. I know that's a muddled mess. You just erase all that. That doesn't even make any sense. But, but what, what I, why I wanted to point to that is it points right at the core of one's identity of what's happening in my spiritual side, in my soul, how I'm being influenced. Uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of Jordan Peterson. You know, he, okay, there's some elements that don't fit very well, but he really has some insight in psychology. He describes a personal psycho, psychological identity as an extension of every part of our life. Our friends, our family, all the groups, the fictional characters that we feed ourselves, that we love, that we identify with, um, inanimate objects even influence this identity of mine. He states this, um, this identification manifests itself deeply, even biochemically and neurologically. Our capacity for identification is something that manifests itself at every layer of our being. And there's studies going on now is that these psychological impacts are changing elements of how our DNA responds. It's called epigenetics. That how, how, I'm, how I'm, my diet, how I'm being influenced will turn on and turn off certain elements in my DNA that change how I think in the long run. Obviously, there's a lot of science about this around mental health. We are really deeply influenced by what I think my identity is. I'd like to use Romans chapter 12 as the structure for the rest of the sermon. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. It's a really good guide for this subject. Come right in and read it, and then I'll show where we're going to break it down. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, if you're trying to get there. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That is, by testing, you may discern what is the will of God that it is good and acceptable and perfect. So, I know this is weird for me, but five points. It's hard for me to do a three-point sermon. Five points. We're going to look at five points. We're going to put them up on the screen. Five points we're going to look at from there is conform or transform. It's point one we'll look at. And then renewal. What is renew? What is that? What is that? mean to renew my mind and then testing because he says by testing these things happen and then the will of God by testing I'll know the will of God our will the will of God that's a big subject and then I'm going to jump into John 15 which is really sums all these up and says well it is in abide in Christ that all these things can work together so conform and transform Conform, the word conform, the roots in there is sus and schema in the Greek. Sus and schema, and sus is joined to. In schema, we know that term, schema. I'm scheming something. There's a schema of something. This concept of being conformed is like a mold. I'm taking clay, and I'm pressing it into a mold, and now it is conformed into what the shape of that mold is. Are we being conformed to the world? I'm clay, my mind, my heart, I'm being pressed into the world. Am I conforming to the mold of the world? 
or being transformed. And this word transform is metamorphosis. It is the concept of metamorphosis, which we all know from that idea of the metamorphosis of the butterfly, right? Our brain is always being trained by something. Is it being trained by the world? Or is it being changed? These addiction studies that, that come out really point to, uh, um, we, they show it really well, how we train the brain. These dopamine releases that happen. That we're training our brain to respond to the, 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 the desire of these dopamine releases. When we, we have a lot of information about this in addiction studies, but also in psychological studies, recognizing, well, there's not a physical addiction to some of these things in my habits, but there are dopamine releases that parallel that really, really well. We are training ourselves. The world is training our, We are always under a training. And if we're not paying attention to that, the world will train us. What are you being trained by? Being trained by procrastination? You're in procrastination training? <laughs> Sorry, my kids are in here. They hear that a lot. Like, oh, you're procrastination training. Wow, good job. Good job. Oh, you're training your mind? Oh, phone training? Training your mind to have less focus? Huh? Is that thing evil? Oh, my goodness. And it's so easy to fall into that trap. Great, great device. Super, super powerful in both directions, in good and in bad. Phone training. Movies are training you. What are we watching? What are we intaking? What are we, who are my idols? These are elements that are training my mind. Um, news, news sources, uh, the echo chambers that we find ourselves in to reinforce my own concepts. I'm training my mind down a path to tell myself how right I am. Reinforcing our biases. I, I like to look at it in this way. I'm going to do a lot of, I mean, I'm going to do a lot of analogies, a lot of graphics, a lot of definitions, and I'm just using those as uh, uh, tools to help us see the image, because these are categories that aren't necessarily as refined as as, as I'm going to present them. But there's the self, there's the spiritual, and then there's the world. We're, we're, we're like this intersection between the material and the world and the spiritual. This really weird intersection. Um, and this is, okay, this is, comes from Immanuel Kant. This is a very, it's a Kantian concept, right? A little bit of philosophy that I like to teach everybody every now and then. He, he identified this concept, the pneuma and the phenomena. The pneuma is what, is what is the absolute truth, the reality of something. And then the phenomena is what we experience of it. So there's the pneuma and that pneuma comes through all of those filters, and then I get the phenomena. A great example that's a classic example that actually predates Kant is, is when I take a stick and I put it in water, this, and I'm looking at this stick through water, it's bent. That's the phenomena. The phenomena is I see a bent stick. The stick is bent. Is it? No. The pneumona is it's a straight stick, and what I am observing is reflections that... Inf that give me different information. Uh, we walked in today. I'm wearing a purple shirt. I, I really love purple. And the SOS shirt is purple. And I, I love purple. It's a great color. And these colors are really great, these dirty purples. And Chance says it's gray. <laughs> Why does he say it's gray? Because he's colorblind. So his phenomena is different than the pneuma. But you can dig deeper into that and say... Well, what is purple? Because it's really a reflection of a certain wavelength. All other things are being absorbed. So what truly is even purple? And, we can, and that's where Kant really is getting into his philosophy. But I'd like to take that into the spiritual concept, is that there is a reality. And then there is what we observe. And what we observe can be very, very muddled. And there's a sheet between it. And the sheet between it is, is, is all those filters. I'm not much of a conspiracy theorist, but I will guarantee this theory. Satan has a conspiracy woven into that sheet between the two. That's a conspiracy I will believe in. 
Satan is using our filters and manipulating them and training them so that what we see in the spiritual isn't truth. There is truth there, and it is accessible, but we need to be careful about what the enumina is. 1 Corinthians 13, for now, what we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, and then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. That verse is talking about when I'm staring into the mirror and seeing myself and who I am, who God is, through, it's, it's, it's dim. There'll be a day when I know it for truth. But here's the, the point. I have been known fully. God knows the truth and knows me fully, my identity fully for right now. God knows the noumenal fully. Jesus knows you fully, fully. Again, here's an image. If you're struggling with all that muddled philosophy, I apologize. But here's an image for us. Um, the thinker. We're on the mind, right? The mind, the first thing that comes to your head is the thinker. Everybody knows the thinker. Everybody knows this. And now I've got a couple of these little statues on my desk. Uh, what does the th- thinker represent? What's he thinking about? He, he's been hijacked kind of by philosophy. He's thinking about deep ideas. He's thinking about concepts. He's contemplating reality, the state of being. Uh, the thinker was uh, commissioned by a man named Augusta Ronin, Rodin in, 19, in 1880. He, he sculpted the thinker in 1904, and what he was commissioned to do, uh, switch over to the to gates. He was commissioned to do a sculpture called the Gates of Hell. There's the thinker right there. That's the, he never completed it. What he was doing is he was going and making different, um, d- different people and different stances, and he would go and do a full image of that, and then he would bring it to the gates of hell. And this is patterned after Dante's Inferno. He never could finish it, but he finished the thinker in 1904. The thinker is sitting at the top of the gates of hell contemplating hell. That's the origins of the thinker. Why do I show that? Is because a lot like our experiences where the origins are have been muddled, have been downplayed, have been sometimes entirely hijacked. The idea of the spiritual origins of the thinker have been completely, has completely disappeared. Karl Barth is a, a, a theologian from the 40s, deep, deep theologian. And he came up with a concept that I learned a, a, couple, a year or so ago and I've been, now it's longer than that, two years ago. And I've been struggling with it for a while now. Um, I'm not sure I'm entirely on board, but there's some pieces to it that I really, really like. The participation in Christ, that as we um, have a relationship with Christ and grow in our relationship with Christ, we are participating with Christ in his death and his resurrection in his ministry. We're participating in his suffering. We participate with Christ. Christ participates with us. And the more that we participate with Christ, the more we are conformed to the likeness of Christ, the more we become like Christ. And that is the true identity of humanity. And if we're not, we are coming, becoming more and more like creation, more and more like an animal, more and more like a reaction of instinct. That's a piece I'm not sure I put together yet, but the idea is perfect for this. The more I'm conforming to Christ, the more I'm like Christ. My identity is with Christ. The less I'm being conformed to the world, and the more I am just acting on instinct. Instincts that are being formed into me from the world. 
So renewal. So that idea is like, okay, well, I want to be transformed. I want metamorphosis in my mind. Renewal is the second concept there. This idea of metamorphosis is such a powerful one. Just what goes on inside of the cocoon of a moth and, and, a, and, a, and, and, a, uh, and a butterfly is absolutely remarkable. There's hormones and enzymes that trigger this. And these enzymes break down the cell structure of the, the caterpillar and it turns into a soup, a goo. And it gets rebuilt and reformed and splits out into this butterfly. This is, this is mind-blowing. It, it's a goo in there. How does it turn into a butterfly? This is the word that's being used here. This is the word about uh, um, being transformed. This, what a renewal from a worm to a butterfly. Something entirely different shows up. But it's the same material. It's like nothing new came into the cocoon. It's the same material. That's, that's, that's us, that's you. It's the same you. But the enzyme, <laughs> if I may, that, that, powerful, that powerful transformation is the Holy Spirit in us. That's the renewal that is happening in us. And if you allow me, that enzyme is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit enzyme in me, transforming me, metamorphosizing me from the Kylan who I was to be more and more and more like Christ, to a more, hopefully, <laughs> somewhat beautiful butterfly. Okay, that <laughs> now I'm really stretching your, memory, your, your imagination now. Look, the same material, but a totally different being. The same person, but metamorphosis into a totally different identity. Can you see that? There's this angst. There's this angst in identity. I, I really think that, that, that our culture is in an identity crisis. And the more I think about it, the more I think it always has been. I think there always has been an identity crisis. There always is an identity crisis going on. So if I can bring back in that concept from Kant, this phenomenal and this noumenal, what is real in my identity? So let me switch that to what is true and what is real. And why I want to do that is because um, of a gal that I was reading some time ago named Rosario or Rosaria Butterfield. Rosaria Butterfield um, was a very, very liberal professor, lesbian as a matter of fact. Um, she, for some reason, I don't remember the whole story why she picked up a Bible or she was just playing around with it to, I don't know, to, to maybe prove somebody wrong. And she was at a party and one of her friends said, be careful with that thing. That changes people. And it did. It changed her. She became a Christian. She became a Christian. She gave up that life. She actually married a pastor. She wrote this book about her struggles and her wrestling with her identity. And so she labeled it a real identity because this is the noumenal portion of what this is what I experience in what I understand as reality. But what is my true identity, which is the identity that Christ wants for me? And she writes this. She, she writes, um, I felt... My real identity, notice felt, there's the heart. I felt my real identity. What is my true identity? The Bible makes it clear that the real and the true have a very troubled relationship on this side of eternity. It's a wrestling match. It's hard. Even It doesn't even have to be that big of... Um, of a, a separation in real and true. I'm, all, you know, I, I, I'm in struggles with it, right? Who, well, who, who am I in God's eyes and how am I responding? And it's a great example of the heart and the mind wrestling and the Holy Spirit transforming. Butterfield started at a totally different place and the Holy Spirit turned her into a butterfly. Remarkable. 
The clarity of our true identity is a process. On this earth, we need to be continually asking and searching our hearts, testing and refining, constantly improving. Don't, you know, don't worry about the rate. Some people are like, oh, I failed, I tripped, I didn't do this. Don't worry about the rate. It's the direction. That's what's important. Continual in this. Uh, Eugene Peterson wrote a book that I love the title and I haven't read it. I read some excerpts on it, but along and obedient, or along obedience in the same direction. That's the concept. Long obedience in the same direction. It changes rate. Sometimes there's even back steps. Sometimes it's a battle up a hill. Sometimes it's a wonderful walk with Christ. Sometimes I'm lost, but I'm going in that direction. That's where my heart wants to be. One of the biggest downfalls, I think, is prosperity. And we're in a culture of great prosperity. But what happens in prosperity is spiritual stagnation. We fall prey to the world, and we fall prey to the resources that we can, that we can build. And we no longer are dependent and, necess- and needing Christ. And so we then become our own gods. We rely on self instead of the hope and the provision of God. Proverbs again, and this one's going to translate fine in any, in any uh, translation, but Proverbs chapter 30, verse 7, is this wonderful, wonderful prayer. I love praying this prayer. Two things I ask of you, God. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me the falsehood of lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and I deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I am full and I steal and I profane you in the name of God. What I love about that is like, find me balance, Lord. I want to depend on you, but I don't want to be in poverty. I've found in my life that um, there's this term that I like to use is frustration is mind building. See, I was going to tell a story. Let me check my time to see if I can tell this story or not. Oh, shoot. (laughs) Um, We can point this to Isaiah 48, Ezekiel 13, 1 Peter 1, the concept of a refining fire. It is through fire. Why does it set up this way? Early, early on in my Christian life, I said, Lord, why does it have to set up this way? Why why is it fire and trial and challenges that refine me and make me better? I don't really like that. I'd like it to be a little bit different, a little easier. Okay, I'm going to tell the story anyways. Because I think I can tell it really fast. It was in the Marine Corps, um, and the, the fourth month of boot camp is um, like long, long hikes. You, you, you go to different areas, and you shoot different weapons, and you take these long, long hikes and camp during between for the, most of the month. We were on one of the big ones, like a 30-something mile hike, boots, pack, everything, right? And we were hiking at night, and they, well, they call it A to B, um, and I'm not going to explain that on stage, <clears throat> which is somebody is right here in front of you and you are pace to pace with them. And if anybody messes up their steps, you're tripping over them, each other. And it is insanely frustrating. And this is happening. And then there's a drill instructor next to you yelling at you because like, you can't walk. You got to learn how to walk, Crocker. And you're just about ready to go. Ah! Every, you know, everybody's cursing. And, and, and then and something just snapped in my head. It was the weirdest thing. It was this level of frustration. I I am going to do something. Either I'm going to kill this guy or I need to turn it all off. And I turned it off. It was the weirdest experience that I go there often now. Where do I just take this and go off, off, take control of this? And it happened through frustration. I would not know parenting. Oh my goodness. I would not know patience if it wasn't for these frustrations. Okay, testing. Third one, testing. Hope I didn't burn too much time there. Um, How is this done? How is this metamorphosis done? How is this transformation done? 
How are the effects of this metamorphic soup? How do I activate the Holy Spirit? By testing, testing things. It's not just the world and the Lord testing me, but it's me testing me. It's me inviting God to come in and test me. There's all, there are all sorts of wonderful spiritual practices to do this. We went through a series not that long ago uh, called How to Grow. A great series of different spiritual practices that help us test ourselves, help us check ourselves. The church fathers, uh, they came out of this period of time of asceticism, which means um, like denial, uh, very self-disciplined, deep in meditation. There, there's so many great practices. Um, uh, St. Benedict, who, who started the Benedictine monks. Um, there's, there's Gregory of, of um, Nazisasi. There's Gregory the Great. There's um, one that I go to a lot is Ignatius. Ignatius had a series of rules of leadership that I like to use, which is just examine. I start, try to start in the morning and I take a look at, I actually open a calendar and I look at my calendar and I examine the day and I pray through the things. And sometimes it is, oh, I got a big meeting. Oh, gosh, I don't like these things. Just help me not feel like I'm an imposter. Help me represent the company well. Sometimes they're small as that, but sometimes it's quick and I go to my prayer list of people. And then at the end of the day, I re-examine. How did that go? Where did I lose track where do I lose sight of the Lord in all of this? Real simple, sometimes it's 15 minutes. Self-reflection, journaling. I use something I call mantras. I use mantras a lot. There's an internal dialogue that goes on in my mind, talking to my soul, in a sense, or talking to Jesus. But what'll happen is I'll remap the conversations I've had. Oh, I should have said this. Well, then I'm going to say this next time. And then they're going to respond this way. And and I'll spin myself into frustration and fury. And I finally, when I realize this, I finally was like, all right, I have to place a mantra there. When I realize it, I need to say, these conversations are not real. They're just not real. Stop with your false conversations. They are not real and they're damaging you. Certain mantras, uh, uh, turn to the Lord. Just prayers, scripture, get a scripture that helps you. Just repetition that helps you get back into that place that you're inviting the Holy Spirit. What this has a lot to do with is awareness. Being aware of what's happening in here and what's happening in here and what's happening out there. Bias is, uh, I would, my, my, in my schooling recently, we've done several different exercises of identifying bias. Oh my goodness. Oh, who's got biases here? If you didn't raise your hand, you're lying to yourself. Everybody has biases. I, I, th- I find myself pretty dang balanced and I went through these exercises and phew, Wow, what biases do I carry around? How do I even identify them? How do I then challenge these biases to make sure that, okay, I've got a bias. I want to make sure it's at least anchored in truth, and I'm not just, I just don't want to listen to it. Um, Jesus' parables do this. I just love this when I started learning this about Jesus' parables. They're quirky sometimes, right? You're reading a parable and you go, What? What? I remember David Wagner talking about uh, the, um, the shrewd manager. What? It's like he's rewarded for being a shrewd manager. What's going on there? Uh, the, the classic example is the one sheep, one out of 99. It is a beautiful image, but there's no shepherd that would leave 99 sheep to the wolves to go find one. There is a, that is foolish. And what, he, what, what, what the parable is doing, and this is why Jesus is doing this, is he's saying... Hey, I work differently. The kingdom of God works differently. The kingdom of God says, no, that one is just as important as all the 99. And what he's doing in the parable is he makes a step back and go, but wait a second, that doesn't fit. Well, yours. And where are we going to go with it? Are we going to say, well, he's a stupid shepherd? (laughs) Or are we going to say, what's going on? What's he trying to teach me? It's challenging our bias. It's challenging our worldview. There, there's something I started way, way back when I was when I actually when I served in SOS. 
which kind of broke me <laughs> in kids' ministry. But I, I had a group of, of, of boys, and I said, look, when we're working through this, I want you to be asking your question of yourself constantly. Do you want to be right, or do you want to know the truth? Because most of the time, they don't align. Unfortunately, they wanted to be right. I got to ask myself that question. I need to be asking myself that question. Pray, 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 pray. Constantly pray. There's a prayer, Psalms 139, that I pray. Search me, O Lord. O God, know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there's any grievous way in me. And lead me in a way everlasting. This is where prayer is where this, my soul is having conversations with God. There's no, what a better place to have a relationship, to build this relationship. Ask yourself, what does God's voice sound like? What does God's voice sound like? There's a good indicator of, am I tricking myself or am I listening to the Holy Spirit? There's a good indicator of, oh, that's actually echoed from this news article. That's not from the Bible. (laughs) And then always compare it to Scripture. I've got an idea or I'm thinking a certain path or I'm making a decision. How does that align with Scripture? How does that align with Scripture? Does it match what I know about Scripture? And the more we understand about Scripture and the more we get intimate with it, the more it is, how does this match with God? Does this match his identity? Does this, does this walk in alignment with his virtues? What a lot of these things are is the will. What did it say in Romans 2? So that you may discern the will of God. And it is good and acceptable and perfect. A lot of this is identify the will. Is it my will? Is it God's will? There's something, this is a critical component and there's something that just struck me when I was studying this and I read this. It's John 6. I think it's important enough I'm putting it up there, right? John 6, verse 38. Jesus says this, and it just made me, oh, it just sent me into a spin of thinking. For I am come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me, which says that Jesus has his own will aside from the Father's will. And what he's showing us in his incarnation is that I have the ability to align my will with the Father's, and so do you. That, that was... Well, I'll be thinking on that for a long, long time. God's will. God is the giver, the creator, the sustainer of all life. Power beyond understanding. There's another image. God is like the sun. Immense power. Amazing energy. All life on earth biologically is because of the sun. You remove the sun, we're dead. You remove God, we're dead. Good. Perfect. The human will. It's the human will. Some imagery for you. But think about it. Beautiful. It's almost indicative of the sun. It's like man-made sun. It's brilliant. It's powerful. And it's destructive. Beyond belief. Joseph Stalin said, I believe in one thing only, the power of the human will. Boom. Arthur Schopenhauer called, he recognized the will as blind, irrational, ceaselessly striving. He said this, the will constitutes the dynamic essence of the world. 
And so when he's talking about the will, he's looking at it in a much broader picture. He's looking at it as the will is the force that drives, the force that drives a plant growing, a, a, an animal migrating, and humans. I want to read, I know Donnie quotes C.S. Lewis. I quote Frederick Nietzsche. <laughs> I want to quote Nietzsche here. And I shouldn't because I, I don't have enough time, but he's such an amazing writer. There's, there's the beauty, the beauty of the human will and the destruction of the human will. He was not a very compassionate man. He was very anti-weakness and anti-compassion. He said that God died of pity. That's the death of God. And here's the very, very famous quote. He writes, God is dead. God remains dead. And we have killed him. How shall we take comfort in ourselves, the murderers of all murderers? What was the holiest and the mightiest of all that the world has yet to know? Has, we have bled it to death under our knives. Who will wipe the blood off of us? What water is there for us to clean ourselves? What festivals and atonements and, sacri- and sacred games shall we have to invent? Is not the greatest of all the deeds too great for us? Must we ourselves not now become gods simply to appear worthy? From the ashes of Nietzsche's dead god comes his concept of Ubermacht, which translates to Superman. The superhuman, the evolution of man. That's what he's pointing to. He calls this concept the will to power. Will drives us to become gods. There's no one to atone us now. So by the way, Nietzsche, how's that turned out? It turned out it's World War II. Turned out as nihilism, it turned out as relativism, turned out pretty damaging. Rather, I'll read Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5 through 10. Consequently, when Christ came into this world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. And then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written in the scroll of the book. I'm going to jump to verse 8, or verse 10. Uh, He does away with the first, the law, in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sacrificed through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. See, Nietzsche only had half the story right. Yes, God did die. And yeah, actually, he died of pity. He died of pity for us. But then he misses the second half, is that God rose. And he rose for love. And that's powerful. And that's the piece that's missing. God does not remain dead, Frederick. It's humanity that must die. And we must die into the arms of the grace of God, which is actually power, not weakness. The only Superman who is worthy of is Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus. So, Okay, there's a lot in this sermon, as usual, jam-packed with stuff, all about practices and do this and think this way. And it's important. Those things are important. But I want to make sure, what am I saying? Am I saying, pull yourself up with the bootstraps? Am I saying, all you need to do is do these habits? Is that what I'm saying? Because no matter how much we try, there's still limitations. There's still sin. There's still things that take me down. Sometimes it's the sins that are not my sins that take me down. Sometimes the sins are the sins that go back to Adam. It's people sinning 
on me. Sometimes it is my sins, and sometimes it's the residual from the sins of decades ago that I can't quite get rid of. There's still impacts of sin, so I'm not saying you just do the right thing. You do, but there's got to be something behind that. This is a very challenging subject because, I mean, I'm I'm telling you, do this and, and be this way, but also then I'm saying these platitudes, like it's only by the power of the Holy Spirit, it's only by the sacrifice of Jesus you got to abide in Jesus. Great, but these are platitudes, right? How do I do that? What does this mean practically? Maybe I should just say, let go and let God. Stop trying so hard. Well, yeah. Yeah, no. But yeah. Philippians 2 uh, is a really, Philippians 2.12, it's a really interesting verse, worth contemplating. Paul writes, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Oh, wow. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God is willing. His will floods me, and that is where my work comes from. Uh, But I'm also called to work this out. Uh, There's a concept as you, if you know, if you hung around me long enough, I'm, I'm, I'm a pretty big advocate of freedom of will. I'm a pretty big advocate of the sovereignty of God, too. There's this concept called um, concurrence or a synergism between the two. God's sovereignty and power overrides all. But he also allows this human will and this desire to be exercised. It's not either or. It's the both and. And it's very, very purposeful. Very purposeful to work it together. So then, how does one do the work of God? I'm, uh, I'm taking a walk with a friend of mine not that long ago, talking some of these things through. We like big theological subjects, and we talk and we pray together. And uh, walk along, I'm talking about these ideas, because um, I'm preparing on the sermon, talking about how, what people say, but then what people do, and how it's a 180 of each other so often, the complexities of the human will. And I reference James, and I say, it's like waves being driven by the wind. In, in the book of James. And my buddy just stopped me and said, he said, this response was really powerful. He said, James will wreck you if you don't have John 15. James will wreck you if you don't have John 15. The Gospel of John, chapter 15, is all about abiding in Christ. Yeah, James is scripture. John 15 comes first. got to be connected to Jesus to even take a look at those things. Otherwise, I'm doing it myself, and I become my own God, and I will fail. It's called uh, Christology. The center of ministry should be Christ. Christ is the center. Um, So obviously I'm, yeah, Super long. So I'm just going to read a couple of verses out of John 15. John 15, verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. He's the vine. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine. I'm the branch. He is the vine. I'm being fed through Jesus. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. And you are the branches, whoever abides in me, and I in him, he will bear much fruit. And apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. So there's another kind of obscure concept there, abiding in Jesus. Um, Okay, at face value, yeah, very simple. Stay connected to Jesus. All things Jesus. Done. But it was very challenging. Honestly, it's a challenge of a lifetime. And it takes a lifetime. But here's the cool thing, too, is it's accessible to everybody. There's this debate about how Christianity is exclusive or inclusive. It is the most inclusive group in 
all humanity. John 15 is accessible to everybody. It is extremely inclusive. Abiding in Christ is a journey, and it's a very complex one. It's a journey of a complex creation and having a very intimate relationship with our creator. That intersection between matter and spirit. It is self-surrender. What I want to highlight is that abiding in Christ isn't an event. It's not an event. It's not a specific work. It's not something that's measurable even necessarily. It's measurable, but by huge chunks of degrees. It's very fluid. There's a fluidity in relationships, right? There's an emotional wrestling. Think of your best friend or your your spouse. There's this fluidity in our relationship. Abiding in Christ is an exercise, and it's an exercise in love. It's more of a poetry than it is a period, if you understand what I mean by that. Heidegger is a philosopher uh, from the, the, the 50s who had said something like, these ideas are too complex for words. As a matter of fact, I think they are better described in poetry. But you go, oh, but that's not very scientific. No, but it does describe my human experience much, much better. That's the abiding in Christ. It isn't pinpointed. It is a continual. Abiding begins with contrite heart, a humbling. And it moves to confession and forgiveness. That's where it starts to be practical. If I can't say I'm wrong, I've sinned, and I can't put it out on the table and say this is where and this is how, then I can't forgive those. I can't say God forgive these It's going to be a hard path without those. Surrender, 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 surrender. Jesus shows us that. He calls us to that. Surrender is divine. That's powerful. It's not weakness. And it's entirely the result of Christ. But it is entirely proportional to you. You follow that? Remember Jesus' sacrificial love. That is at its root. He says in John 15, verse 9, as the, Father who, as the Father who loved me, so have I loved you. So abide in me. Invite the Trinitarian relationship through Jesus Christ and commune with our Father, the Creator, through Jesus, through the remembrance you know, communion should wreck us every time. We should step up to communion, and it's not just a, a symbol, practice. It should wreck us. We are being invited through Christ to commune with our Creator. The covenant is already done. I, I think of it like this it's kind of an osmosis. There's this osmosis where it's a slow, slow process of absorbing. I'm going to saturate myself with Christ and absorb it and absorb it and it changes me. It's a slow process. It's the living water being soaking up into me at different rates for different people at different times. The more we spend in prayer, the more we spend in studying scripture, the more we spend in worship, in spiritual community, the more we are saturated with Christ and the more we are transformed. To abide in Christ means to live with Christ as my center of everything, of all. And that's a challenge. That's hard to do. If Christ doesn't fit into what I'm doing and what I'm saying and what I'm thinking, then I need to rethink it. I need to trim the vine. John 15 talks about trimming the vine and throwing it away and burning it. If it doesn't fit, trim it. All things Christ surrender to him. Okay. 
to love God more means we must know God more. And that's where all those practices come in. We know God through Jesus and we are transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. It is Trinitarian and we are invited into a Trinitarian relationship. It's amazing. It's not wishful thinking or being mindless. It's about an entire change of my worldview. So now going through those points, Romans 12. I appear, appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present yourselves as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world. Be transformed, metamorphosis, by the renewal of your mind, by testing that you may discern what the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and all of your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandments greater than this. Let's close in prayer.